years ago, I suppose it was about 25 years ago, students at Christ College gave me a sweatshirt, wonderful sweatshirt. It was one that had Christ College on it, and then there was an image of a Bible, and then the words, God's Law or Chaos. I thought it was a great t-shirt, I thought it was a great slogan, and I thought it then, a quarter century ago, I suppose, but boy, it is truer and truer every day. And those are the options. God's law or chaos. And we see all about us the moral chaos and wreckage of an age that is post-modern, post-Christian, and post-truth. In our passage of Scripture, 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11, we see Paul's teaching concerning God's law. First, God's law is good. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good. Pretty straightforward message, pretty easy to understand. Everywhere the Scripture attests to the goodness of God's law. For Paul, it is a self-evident starting point. It isn't anything that he feels like he has to prove. So he says in verse 8, but we know, right? Everybody knows this. We know that the law of God is good. No sense having to demonstrate that. It is so clear and self-evident. But if you did want to demonstrate it, there are multiple scripture passages attesting this. Psalm 119 is a beautiful psalm dealing with the law of God. God's commandments, His testimonies, His statutes, His precepts, His judgments, and His word. We saw it as well in our reading this morning, Psalm 19. God's word is perfect, true, enduring, righteous, good, wonderful, and delightful. Psalm 119.99, I have more understanding than my teachers, thy testimonies are my meditation. I knew someone who put that down in this theme verse in the school that he had attended, the Christian school, more understanding than my teachers because I pay attention to the Bible. Psalm 119.105 Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119.160 Thy word is true from the beginning. Thy judgments endure forever. Over and over again, the scripture tells us that God's word, God's law, is perfect and true and enduring and authoritative. Jesus emphasizes the value of God's law and the enduring quality of his word. Matthew 5, 17, think not that I have come to destroy the law, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, rather I have come to fulfill it. Matthew 5.18, 
Verily I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall pass away from the law of God, as commands rule. So not one jot or tittle, not one dot of an eye or cross of a T will perish. God's standards endure. In Mark 7, you may remember this passage, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for diminishing the law of God and instead pushing traditions and extra rules. The Pharisees were good about the rules, lots of rules, man-made rules, not so much interested in the law of God. In fact, Jesus says they lay aside God's commandments. They reject God's commandments. They make the commandments of no importance. The problem with the Pharisees isn't that they emphasize God's law too much, but they diminish it for the sake of their tradition and extra-biblical rules. For as Paul says elsewhere, the law is holy, just, and good, Romans 7, 12. But my point here is that the law of God is good, and Paul says, we just know this, right? It's clear. It's self-evident. God's law is good. Second, the law of God must be properly interpreted. The second part of verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now the implication is that there are right ways to interpret Scripture and incorrect ways to interpret Scripture. If one uses it lawfully. <coughs> and if you are to track on the examples, you will find the Apostle Paul giving all kinds of bad ways to interpret the Word of God. For instance, those who advocate fables in verse 4, or endless genealogies in verse 4, or lots of speculations in verse 4, or disputes. Those who are, and I like the language of the King James Version, who advocate vain janglings in verse 6 the New King James Version has a little bit different language here, but whether you're talking about idle talk or vain janglings, not an appropriate use of God's Word, and certainly not the speculations of ignorant and self-absorbed chief teachers of the Senate. The Word has to be used lawfully, interpreted properly. These are wrong ways of doing it. The Apostle Paul says that the law of God has a certain focus, verse 4. Nor give me to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So the right way of using God's law is in a positive and godly way that promotes edification. Or, in verse 5, Now the purpose of the commandment 
is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. And so a proper way of using the commandments of God is to promote holy and edifying ends, charity, purity of heart, good conscience, and a true faith. Now, if you study the Old Testament <clears throat> and the different interpretations of the rabbis, you will find all kinds of crazy interpretations of the law. <clears throat> I used to own a multi-volume, multi-volume commentary set called Babylonian Talmud, which is compendium of some of these really unusual Jewish interpretations, craziness we consider. And if you study medieval theology and interpretation, you'll find all kinds of craziness there. Speculative uh, uh, tendencies, metaphysical application, it just doesn't make any sense. So Paul says, the law of God is good, but it must be lawfully interpreted. Let me give you some examples of really good ways of using the law. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, says that there are different kinds of law in the Old Testament. There is the moral law of God expressed in Ten Commandments, which include basic ethical precepts that are applicable to everybody. These basic things. Everybody knows these things. The moral law, which is enduring. There is the ceremonial law including sacrifices, dietary restrictions, rules for separation, and these things were completed in Christ, <clears throat> so with the perfect work of Christ, we no longer sacrifice animals. That aspect of the law is completed, the ceremonial law. And third, the judicial law, which is rules for the nation of Israel, and that's been uh, uh, set apart except for what the general equity thereof may require. And this terminology is uh, <clears throat> so important, historically important. In fact, I was asking about Dr. Ponson's twin brother today. Your brother Mark did this masterful study of this moral law of God and the general equity of the judicial law, uh, a, a wonderful study. Three kinds of law. Moral law, ceremonial law, and the judicial law, which was for the nation of Israel, apart from what the general equity may require. I would also add, theologians say there are three uses for the law. How do we use the law of God? Well, there's a civil use to restrain evil. The Bible gives to us basic principles of justice. The civil magistrate punishes bad guys. The civil magistrate maintains order. <clears throat> Every society has basic rules against murder, theft, perjury, etc. All of those are principles found in the moral law. A civil use, second, an evangelical use. In the evangelical use, 
the sin is designed, the law is designed to convict us of sin. And so you read the Bible, and you read the law, and you understand that you're not perfect, that you are a sinner, and you need a Savior. The Scripture tells us that the law was a schoolmaster designed to lead us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. In the Apostle Paul, who was a very God-fearing, observant Jew, said, boy, he got to that one commandment about the covenant, and it nailed him, because he knew he was not keeping that part of the law. If you look at the law to say it restricts my behavior or governs my behavior, I haven't killed anybody. I'm doing well. And Jesus says that that commandment also governs the attitude of your heart. And if you hate people and are angry with people, you have violated the intent of that commandment. And that one covenant that got the Apostle Paul. If you look at our hearts, we see the wickedness of our hearts and how the law of God applies to us. The evangelical use of the law is how the word of God and the commandments of God show us that we're sinners who need a redeemer to redeem us. And finally, the didactic use of the law, the third use of the law for teaching, the law of God teaches us about holy living. It teaches us about walking with the Lord. It teaches us how we can walk faithfully with our Lord so that there's a positive dimension of the law that shows how we might live as faithful Christians. Well, the law is good. The law must be interpreted lawfully or properly. Third, the law does not allow self-righteousness. Verse 9. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.9 Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. When we think of people who are legalistic, we usually think about people who believe that they perfectly obey the law of God and they don't have anything else to do. Deal. If you use the law in that way, you're using it wrong. The law is for sinners, for those who are lawless, for those who are disobedient. The Word of God teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in the way of sin is death. The Word of God tells us, Galatians 3.11, that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident that the just shall live by faith. And so if your approach to God's commandments is to say, I'm doing all right, I'm doing pretty good, you've missed the whole point. Because the law should show you your weakness and your limitation and your guilt before God and your need for a Savior. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified. Jesus comments on this when he talks about a couple of prayers that he observed, or at least a couple of prayers with a different tone. 
Luke 18. He describes a Pharisee who started to pray by saying, I am better than others. I keep the commandments. I do good. And I am certainly better than this tax collector, this publican. Luke 18, verses 11 and 12, Jesus describes how this Pharisee prayed to himself. And then he described the publican whose prayer is recorded in Luke 18, 13. This man was so broken and so grieved that he didn't even dare lift his eyes to heaven. And from a distance, afar off, ashamed of himself, he smote his breast and he said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, this sinful tax collector went to his house justified. The one who simply sought mercy, the mercy of God, recognizing that he was a sinner, was justified. The proud, self-righteous, exalting man did not. The man who confessed his sin and sought the mercy of God was forgiven. Or listen to what David says in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And David's a good example of one who knew the Lord and followed the Lord sometimes and sometimes really messed up. And David says this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And so David's testimony is that the law of God which convicts us, you can read about that elsewhere, but the word of God gives to us blessing and encouragement by explaining that our God is forgiving and willing to forgive sin. The Apostle Paul raises up this testimony in Romans to be a key teaching of our understanding of salvation. The law of God does not allow self-righteousness. The law of God, furthermore, is summarized in the Ten Commandments. 1 Timothy 1, verse 9. Last part of verse 9. But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and for things, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. Now there's a long list of sins. And those sins can be traced or tracked according to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes when we look at this passage or related passages, I'll quiz the children on what commandment is this talking about? When the Apostle Paul says, for perjurers, which commandment? When it says, for liars, which commandment? For manslayers, which commandment? And so the Apostle Paul simply lays out elements of the Ten Commandments and describes how they summarize the law of God. Jesus does this as well in Matthew 22, when people come asking Jesus trick questions. And these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes are always frustrated. They'll ask Jesus a question, he'll flip that question, and then trick him in their 
They're a lot speechless because they don't know how to answer Jesus. And so they come this one time and they say, what is the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, 36. It's a trick question because if Jesus says, well, uh, I don't know, the fourth commandment's kind of important, then it's a what about the other, right? Well, why do you just like the other nine commandments? Or if he said, well, the sixth, that's really important, it's about do you ignore the rest of God's law? And you know the way that Jesus responded. He said that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart and soul and mind. And in so doing, he summarizes the first four commandments of the Decalogue, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. And the second is just like it, to love thy neighbor as yourself. And here Jesus summarizes the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, the commandments that deal with our relationship with other people. So in a masterful stroke, Jesus answers a trick question by affirming and showing the value of the entirety of the Ten Commandments. And then, to make sure that they don't miss the point, Jesus tells these three questioners, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, Matthew 22:40. And so in summarizing the Ten Commandments, Jesus says that the ethical admonitions of all Scripture hang on these two key passages. So if you look at Paul's list in 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 through 10, you'll find him clicking on a number of the Ten Commandments. In Romans 13, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, Oh, no man anything except for love. And then he goes on to describe a number of the Ten Commandments. In other words, the Ten Commandments serve as a functional definition of what it means to love other people. So if you love someone, you're not going to steal his stuff. If you love someone, you're not going to kill them. If you love someone, you're not going to lie to them. The Ten Commandments are a really good way of determining how well you are loving others. Or go with me to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And Paul does something similar here. 1 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous. Now you're going through the list, and you say, okay, I'm doing really, really well on all of this list. I've got nothing to worry about. But to get down to covetous, ooh, that's a tough. Because I don't know how anybody's going to wiggle out of that one. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, you ever have to catch up and stuff? Oh, everyone's probably prone to a little reviling there. Nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And at this point, you might feel a little discouraged because of the 
covetous person can't make it into the kingdom of heaven, we're all barns, right? There's no hope for us. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now here, the Apostle Paul affirms principles of the Ten Commandments, but he also affirms the principle of redemption, that the Lord is able to save sinners. And you go through that list, 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10, oh, there's some big ones. So if we look at our culture, we say, boy, there are some huge sinners here. But Paul closes this admonition by saying, and such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified because of our merciful and redeeming God. The law summarized in the Ten Commandments. I would add that the Protestant Reformation gave tremendous emphasis to the Ten Commandments. So the Reformers were dealing with societies that were pretty ignorant of Christian theology, pretty ignorant about God's Word. And there was a concerted effort to make sure that people understood what the Bible taught. They needed to understand basic doctrines. So most of the professional standards uh, most of the symbols of the faith emphasize the Apostles' Creed, right? People have to know the basics. The Apostles' Creed is a really good summary statement of Christian doctrine. And uh, so go there just to learn the basics. They needed to know basics of human conduct. And so you have to learn the Ten Commandments. And so if you look at the Westminster Short Catechism, all kinds of questions and answers on the Ten Commandments. The Westminster Larger Catechism, all kinds of questions and answers on the Ten Commandments. Those are just uh, English or Scottish standards. You see the same thing in other countries of Europe at the time of the Protestant Reformation. The people need to know the basics of worship, how you come to God and pray. And so many of the standards gave examples from the Lord's prayer. So how do you pray? And it explains what it means when we pray the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. In short, the Protestant Reformation and the Westminster Shorter Logic Large Catechism have rich applications of the Ten Commandments, which are an excellent summary of the law of God. The law of God is consistent with sound doctrine, verse 10. For liars, for perjurers, picking it up in the last part of 1 Timothy 1.10, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now the point here is that doctrine also has a practical or ethical or behavioral side. Sometimes we categorize things, so we've got doctrinal things in you know, the Trinity or justification, sanctification, there are doctrinal things over here, and here's an ethical component, how, how to behave yourself, how do you live. 
But the Apostle Paul sees principles of conduct as being consistent with sound doctrine. We live in an antinomian age where there appears to be no rules and there appear to be no laws. And if you are supposed to emphasize grace, then you should never mention commandments or law. Um, in a church that I served many years ago, I guess 40 years ago, there was a couple of um, elderly men, and they were wonderful Christian men, Christian servants. They'd been involved in all kinds of ministries, but they had come from a tradition that said the Old Testament was about law, and in the New Testament, you never mention law and commandments, you just mention grace. That was kind of their operating system. And I have the misfortune to be teaching a Bible study with these two fellows, and I was going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I read what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19, whoever shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever shall do them and teach them shall be called grace in the kingdom of heaven. And I understood Jesus there to be affirming the teaching of the Ten Commandments and the value of God's law as ethical precepts for us. But these men did not. And they said the Old Testament was about law, and the Old Testament in that regard was very negative and kind of bad, and if you taught that, you would put people under a yoke. Now, it wasn't that these two men were opposed to rules. They had lots of rules, many of them involving cars and going to movies and things like that. Many rules, but they didn't like God's rules. And the one man explained to me the New Testament is more positive. The New Testament tells us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, yeah, that's a great verse, and it's a quotation from Leviticus 19. And then the other fellow said, but, you know, the Ten Commandments are kind of negative in orientation, and really the, the New Testament is positive in its focus. The New Testament tells us to be holy as I am holy. I said, oh, that's a, a wonderful verse, and that, too, is a quotation from Leviticus 19. Then our, our conversation ground to kind of an awkward silence for a while. Um, the law of God is consistent with sound doctrine. Christians are called to walk faithfully with God. We follow His word. We live obediently as His workmanship. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, but having been saved by grace to focus on our obedience to the Lord, and that's consistent with sound doctrine. The law of God, furthermore, verse 11, is consistent with the gospel according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. And see, the two old men that I was talking with. I think that the really there are harder things they wanted to protect the gospel. They wanted to be able to 
tells people that by faith in Christ will be saved, I'm all with it. That's absolutely correct. But they were afraid that by introducing anything about the commandments of God that would reduce the importance of the gospel. The Apostle Paul has clicked through a number of sins, found the Ten Commandments, but in emphasizing this, he doesn't think that he's diminishing the gospel. Indeed, he said that it's according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my Christ. So here's his point. The gospel has been committed to my Christ. And it is a glorious gospel. And it has been given by the blessed God. And it is not contrary to the precepts of God's commandments. Indeed, the gospel tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so a basic scriptural proof is that we are sinners. And unless something happens, we will die in our sins. And the glorious gospel tells us that Christ died on the cross for our sins and we're saved by grace through faith. Or listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes it in verse 15. First Corinthians 1, or First Timothy 1, verse 15. Paul tells us that he was a sinner, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but he had received mercy. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. And sometimes you read the Bible and you say, there's so much there, there's so much content, what should I focus on, what should I pay attention to? Well, verse 15 tells us. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and Paul says, I'm right there, I'm at the head of the line, I am the foremost of the sinners, I am chief of sinners, and he came to save me. And then notice how he goes on in verse 17. And now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Reflecting on his sinfulness and reflecting on the grace of God and reflecting on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all Paul can do is worship God and adore God in this benedictory statement about the amazing, glorious gospel of the blessed God. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, dealing with the law of God, section 7. The law of God is not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but sweetly complies with it, the spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that 
freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. Now let me close with a few applications, some reflections on the law of God first. Our society needs the law of God. We need a moral standard that is fixed and true and reliable and everlasting. We are astonished by the moral chaos that surrounds us. There's this creation ordinance in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. I would never have imagined 30 years ago that this would be a contested point, that people would doubt this at all. It seemed like a really basic creation fact. And it seems like our whole world is unraveling. I think that the Christ college people were onto something. God's law or chaos. God's word provides a standard, absolute, eternal, and good. Second, sinners need the law of God. The most unloving thing to do would be able to allow a sinner to wallow in darkness and despair. If you've ever seen someone going to the outer extremes of sinfulness and rebellion, you do not find a happy person. You find someone who is sad, angry, and unhappy, and it's really pitiful. You think of the prodigal son wallowing in the slot with the pigs. That's not a place that you want to be. The law is our schoolmaster. It shows us our sin and it points us to the Savior. It points us to a way home. There is mercy at the foot of the cross. And the scripture teaches us that Christ died for sinners. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputed not iniquity. And third, Christians need the law of God. We need reminders of the holy standards of an almighty God. We don't emphasize the law because we're saved by it, but as Christians, those saved by grace through faith, we endeavor to walk with the Lord, purposing and endeavoring to walk in new obedience. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we seek to live faithfully according to the terms and standards of His Word. Indeed, prophecies of the New Covenant emphasize the law of God. Let me read for you in closing Hebrews 8. And Hebrews 8 cites Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8, 10 and 11. I will put my laws into their mind. In other words, the Old Testament prophecy of the New Covenant included the Word of God, the law of God being pressed upon our hearts. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. 
And I will be a God to them, and they will be a people to me. And they shall not teach every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that you help us to know your commandments. We pray that through your Holy Spirit you would write your law upon our hearts and upon our minds. We're thankful for all of the provisions of the law, which include a Savior to be a substitute for our sins. We pray that you would help us to walk in newness of life. We pray that you would help us to follow the lamp that you have put in our path. We pray that you would help us to faithfully speak the words concerning your commandments to an age that has become unborn. Help us to be salt and light, we pray, according to the perfect word you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. closing, we will turn to hymn number 374, Jesus Shall Reign, the blue Trinity hymnal, hymn number 374.